many of you already know a little bit about my background. I spent a long time, a little bit too much in the in in the corporate world. And one of the things that I, I had to go through, it was how a company, a multinational company can transform themselves and bring innovation. And at the same time, in fact, uh, develop a pathway of change into the organization. Now, my observation is that tactics like fueling change in organization, like incentivizing, motivating people for, to, for the change doesn't have so many good results, in fact, because we have this natural resistance as, an, as individuals that make us stay in what we are familiar, like a little bit of inertia. We feel protected in, uh, when we stay in the same place. Uh, also, as individuals, efforts, when we have to do efforts in, in order to change, that's something that doesn't help in terms of the motivation, in terms of the unexpected uh, results that we may have despite all, all of these efforts. And I wanted to have a little bit, a bigger discussion on how do we build a work culture that is ready for change. And for that, I was lucky enough, and I must say a little bit impressed because uh, intimidated, let's put it that way, to be uh, to have as a guest, Beth Banks Cohn. And the, the reason is because she has been, she's regarded that by many as an authority on culture, leadership and change. Uh, she has written many articles and books about change. She has been the co-author of the book, The Secret Sauce for Leading Transformational Change. She she's the author of, of a different perspective on, the, on change. Uh, is called Change Smart, Implementing Change Without Lowering Your Bottom Line. Uh, she's also uh, the founder and president of ADRA Change Architects. And I need to ask Beth about what does it mean, ADRA? And it seems to me that Beth has been already building like a pathway that is very focused into change. She holds a, a doctorate in human and organizational systems. Uh, and by the way, her dissertation was already touching the, the, the aspect of how culture and or specifically organizational culture in individual decisions make that is rather in the, in the side of active versus a, a passive part of organizations. And, and that's why a little, I feel a little bit impressed and, and I feel that we, today we are going to learn quite a lot about, about the areas of, of change. Beth, it is a pleasure to have you with me. And first of all, I, I wanted to understand from where does it come, this focus that you have into transformation of organization and specifically about change. Ivan, it's such a pleasure to be here today. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about, obviously, my favorite topic, change. And really where this came from was I was working uh, in the United States in the 80s. So I'm dating myself a little bit. And, <laughs> uh, and we were just putting personal computers on people's desks. Mm -hmm. And what, what, and I was in the information technology group. And what I was finding was that they, we would put these computers on the desk and people had A, no idea what to do with them. And there were so many wild expectations about what could be done most of which were not true. And so I really, I really was impressed by the people who, who were able to say, okay, this is, I'm going to use this in whatever way I can, and really sort of got, got on with it and, and started using the technology. But there were many, many more people who just used it as a paperweight, basically. And, and so uh, I got really interested in this whole idea of change and, and what would make people more comfortable with the change and what would motivate people to make the changes that they needed to make in order to utilize this new technology, this new computer. So that's really where it got started. It didn't end there, but that, that is where, where it got started. In fact, you, you made me think about something that is quite um, valid in today's world. It's like, when we think about change, the big topic about cultural change has, in fact, accelerated, has been communicated left, right, and center a little bit more since COVID 
before I had the impression that it was something that it was naturally driven by the capacity of an organization to convince others to, to do it. So we need to have new technologies, we need better results, we need business restructuring, but nobody gave a damn about what are the psychological resources that people need in order to embrace the change, to, to don't expect that we are going to understand how to use a new device or a new thing that appears in, in our life. And many mistakes have been done and that makes that in average, I don't know if I remember correctly, certain numbers because they change very often, 30% uh, of transformations in organizations are successful. So the majority are not so successful. And I wanted to understand and have your perspective about what are the things, what are the most common mistakes that organizations do when they are embarking in, in, in change? Yeah, that's so that's a conversation that we could talk about for hours, but I'll try to distill it down. So I, I think one of the biggest changes that uh, one of the biggest mistakes that organizations make when they're planning for changes is that they don't take into into account sort of the whole the whole brain or the whole person that they're that they are going to be imposing this change on. And by that, I mean, we have three parts of our minds. Now, we've known about these three parts of our mind since Aristotle. So Aristotle wrote about these three parts of the mind. Only two of them really made it into the mainstream psychological world, the way we talk about how people's minds work. That's the cognitive, right? Skills, experience, education, knowledge, IQ, and then the affective, feelings, values, motivations, uh, preferences, those kinds of things. But there's this third part of the mind that Aristotle talked about, uh, and many have talked about since, which is called the conative or the doing part of the mind. And that's where our instincts sit. That's where our necessity, things we must do, things we're driven to do, things that are really hardwired in us. And companies don't definitely don't take that into consideration. And they also have gotten into this habit of saying, well, if we just tell people about the change, then that fulfills sort of the cognitive needs of people, which is totally not true, right? People need to really be able to think about it and make the decision for themselves about whether or not the change is, is a good change or, or not a good change for them. And from a cognitive perspective, companies change the way jobs are done and they don't think about the people that are in the jobs because I'm great at my job today. It's because it's taking into account and allowing me to use my instincts as part of that job. Mm. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be good at my job. Now a company comes along and says, well, we're gonna change our business. We're gonna change the way you do your work. They think it's really great at a very high level, but for some people, it literally makes their job into something that they would never want to do, but they're driven to try to do it, right? So they're constantly trying to do the things the way the company says, now we have to do it this way, but they're, oh, they're working against their grain and it's a big disaster. So companies don't take that into account as well. And then from an affective perspective, I don't think companies understand really what motivates people. Hmm. And I don't think because they, they, I think often they think, well, I can't really care about what motivates each person because I need to just think about sort of the bottom line and they don't, don't take that into account as well. Uh, they, they do sometimes think about how people feel about stuff, but how I feel about stuff is completely dependent on my life in general. And today I may feel great about it, but two weeks from now I may not, right? Because something else in my life is going on. And for many organizations, just this conversation is too complex. Right? It's too many variables, too many things, and they just have to make the decision and move forward. And I don't disagree that sometimes that's what you have to do, but then you have to prepare for it. Right? Like you said before about the effort that it takes to change. Like there's a simple formula. If it takes more effort for me to do this new thing than it took for me to do the old thing, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's right. psychologically just the way it works. And it doesn't have anything to do with like the goodness of me or the badness of me or, or anything. It just has to do with as humans, we are not going to put out more effort to make a change that probably goes against the way that we instinctively work anyway. Like it's just, it's too much effort. Hmm. And so, and so there's that piece of it as well. So, like I said, we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> but it looks <clears throat> simple when you say it, Beth, that is that there is three parts of, of the mind. And when we think about it, so organizations, when there is a change, they will invest quite a lot in training, in this cognitive part. 
Like, right. yeah, learn digital, let's blast it. E-learnings, training over, over training, or I don't know if you are changing the model about how you view your customer. So they will invest quite a lot. And, and it seems to me like when I was back in my corporate life, that was that was the, the main thing. So 80% of the budget was deployed into 60,000 people for being trained in, into the change, but that is not enough. Uh, the effective part maybe has taken a little bit of a um, of a starting point maybe 10 years ago. And basically when we, st we started talking about uh, emotional intelligence, I mean, the, the, every HR person has read uh, Daniel Goleman. So they, they knew a little bit that this needed to be uh, put into consideration. But the part, the last part, the doing part, the psychological resources that people need in order to, to do it, to practice it, was that wasn't there and even i i think about most of the assessments that there is today are very driven into how much you know how much you uh, you are motivated into into doing something but it's not about do i have the capacity am i actually doing something so i, I still remember that when i was being assessed back in my corporate life uh, i used to score very high in terms of emotional intelligence because I knew the, the, the theory behind. But in practice, because I was stressed, I wasn't practicing, I wasn't putting it in, into, uh, into practices. <laughs> the last point that I wanted to mention is that, that, you, that you, just to build on what you said, is that motivation is something that makes people consider about doing things, but it's not enough because we have it quite volatile, right? When imagine anyone has, is always thinking, it's end of, of, end of the year. So I want to have a healthier lifestyle in 2023. I want to save more money. I want to travel more. I want to devote more time with my wife. All of these intentions, today I have a high motivation, Let's see in February. My motivation is going to go to hell because I'm overloaded with a lot of stuff to, to do and it's going to be volatile. It's, it's sometimes not enough. And last point, we were cracking a joke just before we started about human resources people. So they are supposed to be the ones who are the guardians of the psyche of people. And nevertheless, when it is about change, it seems that business takes over the all the decision maker making and the psychological part of individual is not taking into consideration. What do you think yeah, about so this? this? <laughs> yeah, so this last part, I think is really critical because first of all, taking care of the psychological part of people makes good business sense. So once, once leaders of organizations understand that, they understand that it is their job to, I'll say it simply, happy people or productive people. That's pretty much the way it works. If you do things that make your people unhappy and not in like petty ways, but like like cutting their salaries or make not getting them paid on time or making you know making the job itself onerous in some way, they're, they're not gonna be as productive. Hmm. And business people know this. What I say is the smart business people pay attention to the people side of change because they're the ones that are the 30% successful. Like yeah. if, if you pay attention to the people side of change, then you will be successful. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Like there's always sort of the vagaries of the market and stuff like that. But I think, I think that that's, that's an important thing. And the other thing I just wanted to mention was, is that pretty much every assessment out there that assesses emotional intelligence or, or, you know, the Myers-Briggs or the DISC or the StrengthsFinder or whatever, these all measure affect, that affective part of the mind, right? Yeah. Only IQ tests measure and, and skills tests and those kinds of things measure the cognitive. There is a, there is an instrument that measures the conative part of the mind called the Colby index, K-O-L-B-E, and uh, created by Kathy Colby, who, by the way, whose father was the person who created the Wonderlick IQ test. So I'll just say that. So it's a great pedigree. But she has discovered how to really measure this instinct. And when you combine it with understanding how you affectively approach the world, and you combine it with how your skills, knowledge, and education experience play into it, you really can 
become this sort of full picture of understanding everything about yourself and then how you approach change. I use that same idea around the three parts of the mind at a larger level at the organizational level. And I think it's it, it's really important to understand that 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 conative or doing part of the mind is not your affective part of the mind. Like, for example, I'll give myself as an example. When I start a project, my instinct, the first thing I do when I'm motivated to solve a problem is I gather information. I read a book, I read articles, I talk to people, whatever, I gather information. If somebody came along and said to me, you're not allowed to do that, you just have to go out there and just start taking action of some kind, I would be terrible at it, right? Because my instinct is to gather that information. And so, and people have lots of, there's people who have the opposite instinct of me when it comes to information. So we have to take all of that into account when we're thinking about how we want to change an organization. And if we don't, then we run the risk of creating a change that appeals to a small segment of our population, but not to the whole population. And that's one of the reasons why changes fail. Hmm. Now, we mentioned that the word motivation. So when there is change, there is a tendency also to that leaders in order to encourage others, they will say, so the motivation is going to be driven by, I don't know, you have potential to go for a promotion if, if you are successful into this period of, of change. So we are thinking about extrinsic motivation factors in order to promote the change. But then there is something that we have in, in within, so this intrinsic motivation. And I wanted to ask you, so getting the buy-in for change in the organization, uh, sometimes it, it is a friction because we, organizations always have an easier way out with extrinsic motivation that can be short-term and, and so on. Um, how do we get around to nudge people is there like a specific sauce, magic sauce in order to really drive the fire on people and the, so that they want to do, to, 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 to change? Well, I think a couple of things. And I think, I think it's also something that you need to think about sort of, is this a sort of a 50,000 person organization or a, you know, or a 5,000 person organization? Cause it, it does look different, but it, the concepts are the same, which is really understanding the impact that, the change that you're thinking about is going to have on jobs, on people, really understanding what that looks like. And then also really understanding sort of how, what else is going on in the organization and in the world that will impact somebody's interest or motivation in changing at all. So the pandemic's a great example, right? So we're coming out of the pandemic, companies are desperate to make all kinds of changes. And what they're finding is, is that what they're complaining about is that everyone's resistant to change. And I think to myself, duh, right? Yeah. Because, because people are tired. The, the pandemic's been exhausting. Like there's so many other things that are getting in their way that even if they were motivated in some way, it, it takes so much energy that energy that most people right now don't have. So then what's a company to do? Really understanding sort of, okay, so we, we need to make this change or we don't right now, right? Sometimes the best decision is, be great to make this change, but you know, we're not going to do it right now because we don't have the capacity to do it in our organization. A million other things are going on. Maybe we've made 10 changes in the last year. Like when I go into a company, I say to them, you tell me, where does this change sit in the context of all the other changes? Hmm. And if the company says to me, well, we've made, you know, six changes here and 12 changes here. I say to them, you know, is this really necessary? Like, be great for me to have the work, but is it really necessary? Because I'm not sure you're going to get the return that you're looking for, given the, given the context, the environment in which you're introducing this change. So really being able to think about that, thinking about the impact. And then, by the way, getting input. So one of the things that companies do is, right, they, they're in a room, they're senior leaders, they make decisions about changes based on spreadsheets, right? They maybe think about the capacity of their organization and maybe not. And then they come out and they say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then people start saying, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And companies at leadership levels don't always want to hear that, right? They want to hear, this is such a great idea. Why didn't I think of it? Let's just do it, right? So first of all, toxic positivity, ex the expectation that there'll be toxic positivity, but also the expectation that that's how everybody's going to approach change is wrong. Like there are people who are hardwired in this world that when a change is introduced, their their instinct is 
to avoid risk and uncertainty and chaos. And if they think this change is going to introduce that in some way, until they can be shown that it won't, they're gonna resist the change. And so being able to understand that and being able to have the conversations that are needed in order for people to feel like, okay, I, I see myself in this change and I see where it's not gonna create risk and uncertainty. It's going to create potentially opportunity. At the very least, it's gonna let me keep my job because it's gonna save the company from going under. Like all of those conversations have to happen and co companies don't wanna have those conversations because they take time and they take preparation. And the truth is it takes less time and preparation to have that conversation to get the buy-in than it does to do another change because this change didn't work. Hmm. So I love the fact that you have defined this capacity for change, which is, I don't know, I, I'm just thinking loud, like it's, it's about the frequency of changes and the speed of change. So you cannot expect like within one year, big things are going to happen. And for me, many leaders have like a hard time to understand that organizations behaves a little bit like individuals. So we also, in our personal life, we cannot be uh, taking care of changing our lifestyle to be a little bit, have a healthier, have healthier food, and at the same time, start a, a new education, and at the same time, be entrepreneurs, because we cannot handle this level, this addition, this complexity and uncertainty that you mentioned several times, uncertainty in, in, our, in our brains. So that is something that is obviously difficult for leaders to understand that you take an organization, you take an individual, if it is hard for you to do so many changes, imagine uh, the, the organization that impacts the life of, uh, of many. So in, in many models for change, and God knows that some of the models come from the 70s, um, that change the, these change management processes or, or models i think the, the 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 one that was used um and is quite recent is still the mckinsey model the 7s or 7c's i don't remember exactly that is quite <laughs> that is a little bit modern let's say but most of them do not consider this um the psychological factor for uh of, of humans, of the organization. Um, is there a way, and I know that you have worked on that because I read a little bit the, the synopsis, the abstract about uh, about your, your book, Change Smart. Um, and uh, I wanted to know, is there a way to integrate in, in these change management models these psychological resources that are that are required in order to transform organizations. Yeah. So first thing I'll say about all models, and I don't want to sort of call out McKinsey specifically because I think I think they have the same good things and bad things about them that every other model does. Um, first of all, most of them are are too complicated for organizations to really use in a useful way. So I I'll just say that, and I I also think that. Um, you know, all of these models are based on theories and theories are not truth. They're theories, right? So they're, I'm not saying that they're not right, but I'm saying that they're in, in every theory, there's things about it that work well and things about it that don't work well. And, and when I started working with change and, and I, I, I wrote that book based on sort of at that time, which is a while ago already, the, my experience, and I've actually expanded that framework, that change smart framework, and now it has four pieces. But it's basically the same thing, which is all along the process, you can't just think about the, the sort of the physical pieces of the change, right? But also the psychological pieces. So understanding what at the very least, like what is, what's gonna be different when your change is over? Like sometimes I go into organizations and I say, okay, so you're gonna implement this change. What's gonna be different? Oh, we're gonna make more money. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. Cause why else would you do it, right? Uh, but like, what's going to be different? Like, what's going to be different in your organization? How is your organization going to be different? How are the people going to be different? What are they doing that's different? What's really, if you had to articulate the vision for this change, what's going to be different about your organization, other than the fact that you're making more money? What's going to be different about it? 
that's going to speak to people. And often they haven't thought about it because they've gotten that spreadsheet that said, if you do this, then you're going to make more money. And so there's that piece of it. But there's also really understanding the context, right? Which we just talked about sort of how does this change fit in with all the other changes you're making? Has it fit in with the world? And also what's going to get in your way? Like what, how ready are you? Like, do you have the systems to support it? Do you have the, do you have the people to support it? Do you have the leadership to support it? Do all your leaders support it? So really understanding what, what, what's going to work in your favor and what's not going to work in your favor. Mm. And then, and that's just all these conversations at the beginning, right? And then you have them all along the way, understanding the impact on every job, understanding, understanding really how are you going to know that you are successful? That $10 million lift in, in sales or whatever is, is not going to be the only thing that makes you successful. So what else, what other indicators do you have to be? And then really making sure that you are aligned all along the way. And, and, and so, and there's, you know, and communicating all along the way and not just communicating out, but getting communications back. Like one of the bases, bases of my, of my framework is there's a 360 degree feedback process and communication process that happens all along the way. Like you're, you need to set that up and be getting information in as well as giving information out. And so all, all of these things are things that are not necessarily built in. Sometimes they're an afterthought, sometimes they're assumed. Like some of these models, they assume a certain level of this and, but they don't say it in the model. And then, and some of it is that they're, they're, it's sort of, they're at such a high level that they really don't take into account that the people who made the decision are not the people that are, who are doing the implementation. So at that very high level, it might speak to them, right? But at the at the at the actual level where the change is going to be implemented, it may it may not really relate. And so there's that piece of it as well. And so my like my my framework, first of all, I call it a framework because it's not a model, right? It's a framework. It's the things that you can do that will make your change better. And maybe you're going to choose to not do one of them. And I would not recommend that. But people do. Your change will still be better if you do the other things. Right. And so I want them to consider it something that they have a choice in, what's going to work for them. Because one of the things about models is, is that you have to do the whole thing or it's not going to work. And nobody does the whole thing. Like if you think that everybody follows the McKinsey S7, S step, S model or whatever it is, exactly are wrong. Nobody does. And so that's why I created this framework where you could pick and choose the things that make sense to you. And I boiled it down to like really the things that you really need to do in order to be successful without all the other sort of fluffy things. And I don't, I don't assume that you're going to do all of it because the framework works, whether you do all of it or you do half of it, it's mm. still going to help your change be more successful. If you do everything, you're pretty much guaranteed success. But if you only do half of it, it's still going to be better than it would have been if you didn't do, do half of it. I don't know if I have understood it correctly, but you kind of hinted that your model has like retro feedback. So it is not a linear thing like most of the change models, but it's more about iterations. So you have data to validate the next step instead of imagining that somebody is going to be sitting in January, putting together, this is the roadmap and we need to finish in 18 months. And in 18 months, a lot of things, a lot of uncertainty has accumulated, making it like, Whatever you plan for 18 months is going to be a total waste because nobody can forecast 18 months of change. So I love this, this, this idea of having continuous, uh, continuous iteration. And it made me think also that about some of the transformations that companies do is to implement this model of lean startups, so, which comes from inspired from startups to say everybody needs to, to have <coughs> this way of experimenting con continuously and it's made in order to bring continuous innovation rather than an innovation that is unique and people change and then we expect another change in three years or, or, or so uh, and it was inspired i think out of the book this lean startup from uh, um eric reese and what i noticed is that 
when you put it in practice, when you finally understand the theory, because it's very difficult when you are in the corporate world to imagine that you can really do things like an entrepreneur, take decisions, do a little bit of experimentations just by yourself, go to the street, minimize the risk and, and all the stuff. When you don't have the systems and processes in place, it becomes a disaster. When, for instance, you do a small mini group of marketeers and salespeople working together in a specific project to develop experimentation, but then your purchasing department doesn't have the right process to do things at speed. Your legal department is going to tell you no because risk, uh, taking risk, it means failing. Uh, and the mindset of the of the around these mini group of people who wants the change is goes down to hell, definitely. So <laughs> you need really to have this three areas that go together with the change. It's not only about knowledge, it's also a mindset. It is systems that can produce this data that you need in order to take decisions quickly. You cannot expect to have a market research company who will come in three months with the results of an experiment that you did in, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, now, and that drives me to, to the, this specific question that is about how do we train people to acquire, in fact, this mindset of embracing change? So most of, when we look at the, most of the leadership development programs, um, they prepare people to manage business and less to drive and inspire others during the times of change. So according to you, so the, and it's not cognitive. I mean, having the mindset of embracing change is, is not something that you learn with PowerPoint as, as slides or attending, I don't know, uh, a university uh, mini degree. So how do we learn? How do we equip specifically leadership to so that this is included, this developing in others, inspiring others for, for, for change? How, how do we learn these type of things? So a couple of things. I think I, I, the first thing is, is that... Um, how you approach change is is really dependent on your instincts, right? So some people have the instinct to experiment. Oh, let's see if this works or that works. But not everybody's like that, right? Some people are the exact opposite, like I talked about before, that they're hardwired to to they view the they view change through the lens of avoiding risk and uncertainty. And so their approach to change looks different. They're still changing. They're still committed to changing, but it's going to it's gonna look different. And by the way, no company can have only people that just want to experiment. Like it, it's great to have some people that do that, but if everybody's like that, then who's going to, who's going to say, okay, now let's get down to how are we going to implement this? What is the risk and uncertainty that we're introducing into the organization? Can the organization bear it? And then, and then how do we, how do we figure out a way to, to, do what the company wants to do, but do it in a way that works for everybody and doesn't sort of destroy the company in the process. And so, mm. like when when companies say when companies put in their competencies, which makes me a little crazy, that they want that their the competency is to embrace change, it makes me crazy because they are making a judgment that people who critically look at change in a way to help the company avoid risk and uncertainty will never be able to be seen as embracing change. They're embracing change in their own way, but they need certain things to be, to happen in order for them to embrace change. But what companies are really saying is they're saying, we just want a bunch of people who just want to experiment about it. Like we, which they really don't want, but which they basically, that's what they're saying in this competency. And then half your population feels terrible all the time because they're never going to be seen that way because it's not how they approach change. So the first thing I think Leadership development programs need to help people understand that there's lots of different ways to approach change and there's no bad ways. It's just giving us different, we just have to work with people differently in order to make sure that everybody can embrace the change in the end. Because our goal should not be to announce the change and everybody embrace it. It should be that we announce the change and then we work with people. And then in the end, everybody embraces it and we move forward. And that's not the way companies want it. They, they at the leadership level. And so they need to really go back to school about that to say, that's not, that's not, it doesn't serve you as a company. When I, when companies say to me, well, we just want everybody to embrace change. I'm like, really? 
Like you just want everybody driving towards that cliff and you don't want anybody to say, you know, there's a cliff. Like you don't want that. Like I would, I would want that in my company. Like I would want somebody to stand up and say, but have you thought about this? Or have you thought about that? And they might have, but maybe they haven't communicated it. And that's where like, for me at the beginning, talking about those scenarios, like talking about scenarios about how it impacts people, who it impacts to your point before you can't, you can't just in today's world. Anyway, you can't just impact a thing in, in marketing and not have it affect, not just sales, but finance and, Mm -hmm. and HR and, and uh, uh, distribution and like so many other places. So, so you, you can't implement a change in a vacuum from a company perspective, you have to involve everybody. And so you have to say, okay, it's going to affect shipping because, and distribution, because we're going to need more of this product out there because we're going to be having a push on that. And so you have to inform them and you have to get them on board and they have to be able to do it. And the manufacturing has to be able to produce the product. And so it's, it's that kind of thing. But so to get back to your question about the leadership development, we, we really have to focus on, on helping people understand that, that, uh, that embracing change is the end goal, not the not the first thing you do in a process. That's right. So that to me, if they just did that, and and I think there has to also be this is and this is a sort of a a thing that I that I really believe in is you know you cannot in my opinion be a great leader in an organization if you're not a great people manager first. Like maybe you don't manage people the same way you do when you're a CEO and when you were a manager. But being a great people manager gives you the skills to understand the complexity of the organization into which you want to introduce change. And if you were a great people manager and you understand that motivation is complex and that how people change is complex, that when you get up to the C-suite and you're making decisions about change, you're going to say, we need to, yes, this is a great change. Looks great on paper, but let's let's test it out first. Let's get a group in here and talk about it first. Let's get a change consultant in here to help lead us through some conversations about really the impact that it's going to have. And after we do that, then we'll make a decision to make the change and we'll be way more prepared to do that. But you have to be a great people manager because it's what gives you the skills to understand your organization, not just as a spreadsheet, but as a complex uh, group of people who have come together to create your organization. You know, in my dissertation, I said that culture is a verb because culture is created and recreated every day in companies because of the actions that people take. Mm. And when you introduce change into that and the actions are going to change, your culture is going to change. And you have to take that into consideration as well. When you were mentioning about, you used the, the word instincts. And then I was thinking about something and and I made it personal because I, I was thinking about Ivan when he was 18 and then what happened in my 18 years plus of corporate uh, corporate life. Certain of my instincts were formatted by the culture of the organization. So if at the age of 18, I was a full experimenter, um, um, the culture of the organization made me a little bit more cautious, like because in that specific corporation, it was very difficult to to fail. Like if you fail, you were pointed out, you were penalized and and so on. It was a very competitive environment. So that formatted uh, a little bit the um, uh, my way of, of being. And now that I'm not anymore in the corporate life, I see that, I mean, I, it took me time to lose this aversion to, to risk. Uh, it took me time to understand that failing is part of the, uh, part of the learning. And my question goes, so how can we accelerate the unlearning part of the b- previous culture? Because there was maybe stuff that we want to get rid of, right? Uh, in the previous culture. How do we unlearn this, this part? Because this anchor is like in the hard drive, in the permanent memory with a lot of rules that we have to follow and so on and how do we remove it yeah so really what you're talking about is that you have an instinct right your instinct is is to try things and experiment and see what works and that that kind of thing which which is by the way the definition of a great entrepreneur usually right their willingness to take that risk and then you went into an organization that said to you 
that's your instinct, but you can't use that here. And so you got skills, like you built skills in being more risk averse, right? Those are skills for you. It's not your instinct. Your instinct is to just try it, see what's going to work. Yeah. But you built all these skills and you created this way of sort of tamping down your instinct in favor of succeeding in this company. You built these skills so that you could succeed, but now you're out. You're free to be yourself. And it takes time to get back in touch with that risk aversion that you created as a skill. Like that's a skill for you, you know, avoiding risk. Um, and now you have this skill and now in some ways it's sort of taken over. And when your instinct says, oh, let's just try it. Your skills, like, like that cognitive part of your brain is like, no, no, we have to be risk averse. <laughs> and so you, it, it, it's almost like the inner voices, right? So you have to, you, you basically, it's unlearning a skill that by the way, it comes in handy, right? Cause there's a balance then, but it's really unlearning that skill and just saying to yourself, free to be myself. This is the decision I would make. Like free to be myself. Like I can do whatever I want. Free to be myself. This is the decision I would make. And if you say that to yourself enough times, at some point you're going to stop saying it because you're just going to make those decisions. And that's where the unlearning comes in. And by the way, everybody that worked in a corporation has to unlearn something. Oh, it's a little yeah. sad. I talked to somebody the other day and I said, she said, oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I'm, uh, I'm like recovering from something now that I'm not in that organization. And I said, join the club. We're all recovering from that, right? Because we all had to do things that were against our instincts, sometimes even against our values, but for certain against our instincts in companies in order to fit in. But now that we're out and we're, we're entrepreneurs and we're able to do it our way, we just have to keep reminding ourselves that we are free to make those decisions. We are free to be ourselves and good, bad, or indifferent. That's what we're going to do. And over time, you'll unlearn that other piece of it. Hmm. You gave me the, a little bit of, of, of a bait because now I want to ask you, so what did you have? What was the hardest thing that you had to unlearn from your corporate life to the your entrepreneurial life? So for me, the hardest thing that I had to unlearn was I had to, uh, I had to, for me, it was believing in myself, believing in my instincts, that my instincts were right. Because what I learned in corporate life was that my, that I might've believed my instincts were right, but other people had a different way and that they were very much about the sort of how I went about it as opposed to the what the end result was going to be. And I was very focused on sort of, well, this is going to be the end result. Like what difference does it make if we do it this way or that way? They were very focused on, no, you have to do it this way, right? The rules and the process and whatever. And so uh, I had to unlearn looking over my shoulder to see if I was, if, if I could do it this, my way. Right. And so, um, and so I, and so that there was that part of it and it was, it was, um, it was hard, right. It was really hard to to get over that. I mean, I'm out of corporate America for 18 years, so I'm I'm hoping I'm I'm hoping I'm done. But at the beginning, it it was really hard because I just kept thinking, well, you know, I have to I have to do these things in a certain way because that's how I did it and was successful in the company. And what I found was that being in my own business, it wasn't the way I needed to do things in order to be successful. I could do it any way I wanted. And uh, it was very freeing. I have to say, you know, I, somebody said to me, you know, would you ever go back into a, a corporation? And I said, you know, I'm unemployable because, because I, I, the freedom of being able to pursue what I think is important to talk about what I think is important and to turn it into programs and services for other organizations is, is what makes me who I am. And to go back into a corporation that's going to have a lot of rules around what that's going to look like, nah, I'm good. That's funny. I have used the same word, unemployable, for yeah. myself. It is that there, there is many things that make us like, I mean, despite that being an entrepreneur has ups and downs, it's volatile, we get adapted because when you develop this passion, it's like, you are immersed into a lot of work, but it is joy because you feel like you're contributing to something. 
and especially in the field maybe that we are you feel that, that you see results that are that you empathize with because it's about human beings it's not about generating income out of cryptocurrency we are talking about in making people better making organizations better correcting maybe the in my case the little mistakes that i did back in in in, in my corporate life and yeah I, and that's something is a drive this is my intrinsic motivation that makes me uh, makes me continue but so the title of this episode of course it is about um about bringing this building a work culture that is ready for change so let's imagine that you get like a magic wand and then there is a big ceo who tells you you are fully responsible for making my organization ready for change so no asking to the ceo is it good or not he tells you you have full authority in my organization how would you start making an organization making it ready for change so they don't need to change today but you need to make them ready so i would say two there's two things one is is uh the organization needs to be resilient and an organization is only as resilient as each individual's resiliency mm. within the organization so i think i think helping people become more resilient for themselves understanding what goes into resiliency understanding where they are with resiliency understanding how to replenish resiliency mm. when it gets used like all of those things i think are critical for people to understand about themselves so i think i think there's that piece of it and then i think the other piece of it is really teaching the organization um i don't want to say teaching the organization but i think helping the organization see the critical conversations that need to happen when deciding about change so there's that piece of it as well. So the kinds of conversations that I have with organizations about what's your vision for the change, the context that it goes in, that it gets inserted into, like all of the thinking that I have, helping them see the value of that, but also learn how to do it themselves so that they don't, they don't need somebody like me every time there's a change, right? So they, they build it in. And the way that you build that in is the third piece of it is, is creating great managers. You if you are an organization and you want to have an organization that deals really well with change all the time, you have to have great managers. Like, and if you only do one of these three things that I just said, do that one, right? Because great people managers are your helpers, your allies, right? They're the ones that gather their teams together and say, listen, this is what I know about the change. This is what I don't know about the change. This is, these are the, you know, what are your questions? I'll get them answered for you. Like really understanding the people's needs for the information around the change, but not just the, not just the sort of the headlines, but more what goes, what goes on underneath, like why, what motivated the change? Why are we changing this way and not this way? And being able to have those conversations with people and help them understand what is changing, but also help them understand what isn't. You know, one of the most important conversations a manager can have with their people is to help them focus also on the things that aren't changing in the organization and for themselves. And so that they can they can um, help people really see that there are, yeah, lots of things are going on, but there's lots of things that are staying the same. And, and all of those things to me, if you have great people managers, I call them middle management in my book, but if you have great people managers, all of that is so much easier because they can have those conversations with the people that matter, the people that are gonna implement that change and make that change work. I love it. So three different areas, resilience, bouncing back from setbacks, uh, conversations in order to understand. And and I, I see it also like a way of enabling a process where people can speak up, no, to contribute to the change, to say the things as they are, to remove certain barriers from the uh, from the past that maybe you're, you were not allowed to to bring ideas in the past because you were expecting your manager to have them. In fact, the role of the manager in the third step is, is changing because he's rather an enabler rather than the God that has the solution for everything in the, uh, in the organization. So he's just supporting the teams to, to come 
with the to with the ideas for change or or, or to 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 facilitate the discussion so that changes channel rather than just disperse ideas that people are trying individually without a, a real process if this change brings value or if this change has enough data to see if uh, if if it's going to contribute to the bottom line of of the organization i love that one uh, beth I would like to thank you because I, I I really love the fact that in your perspective, the the human side and specifically the psychological part of the organization is taken into consideration. And that's why I was a little bit talking bad about the all change management models. And I, I'm, I'm glad that we had this discussion. And I'm pretty sure that many people may have questions uh, about your model, about what you do, what you do in in, uh, in your organization. How can they reach you, Beth? Well, you can always email me, Beth at AdraChange.com. So A-D-R-A change.com is obviously the easiest way. I'm on LinkedIn, Beth Banks Cone. And uh, they could certainly connect with me or send me a message and we can certainly continue the conversation that way as well. So I will make sure to put this um, uh, your email and your website and your LinkedIn uh, um, profile. Um, tell me, what is Adra? I wanted to ask you. <laughs> so when I was looking for a name, I, I was doing a search and I came across a region in uh, like in the Adriatic Sea, maybe. I You know, it's very funny, right? But yeah. it's. Because uh, I really, it was 18 years ago. So I really, uh, well, no, I started out as Banks Consulting, and then and then I changed it a, a couple of years later. Um, but it was this place where where the where the sea basically met the cliffs. Like there was no beach or anything like that. It was just sea and cliffs. And I thought like that's really what I what I want to bring to organizations. I want the I want them to feel feel confident the solid bedrock of where what i'm bringing like i bring a lot of knowledge and experience and education with me um, but there's also this fluidity in that i i want to work with them to figure out a way to make it work in their organization and so the c sort of is the the that part of it and the and the the cliffs are the the solidness of the background that i bring so it's that flexibility and uh and sort of that that pillar that really if they can, if they can um, think about Audra Change Architects as somebody that brings both of those things, I think it brings the best to the organization. Thank you, uh, uh, Beth. Uh, by the way, I didn't do the, this connection between Adra and Adriatic, but now I see it. Thank you very <laughs> much, Beth, for your for your time and consideration. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a, a pleasure, really a pleasure, and I'm uh, I'm excited for our conversation that we had today.